0: simple way, we can remind ourselves this is the Word of God, and as such, it is due our reverence. Acts 17, beginning in verse 1, says this, Now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they'd taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So in the passage we just read, we do indeed have a tale of two cities. Paul and Silas and company, they first preach the Word of God in Thessalonica, and then they move on and preach in Berea. And while there are some similarities in the way that the Word was received in those two cities, for the most part, there is a giant contrast. The Word of God is received much differently in Berea than it is in Thessalonica. And it's in that contrast that I think the great lessons for us can be found but that said, before we get to the things we might learn from the contrast, I think it's important that we first see the contrast with our own eyes. And so the plan this morning is to work our way through the passage, starting with Paul and Silas's ministry in Thessalonica, and then moving on to their ministry in Berea. And as we do so, I think the contrast between the way those two cities receive the word of God will be obvious. And then once we've seen the contrast, we'll circle back around and consider, okay, what do we do with this? So let's just start by making our way through the tale of two cities here, starting with the first city, Thessalonica. And we pick up the story in verses 1 to 4. Verse 1 says this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So after passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Paul and company make their way to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a thriving seaport and it was the capital city of Macedonia. It was also home to the Roman proconsul, and known in general for its loyalty to Rome, which actually I think becomes a factor in this story. Nevertheless, the point is, they make their way to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas do, and as was their typical custom, Paul begins his ministry by heading to the synagogue and preaching to the Jewish people gathered there. On three Sabbath days, he reasons with the people gathered in the synagogue from the scriptures. Now, in this case, when we're talking about the scriptures, we're talking about the Old Testament. More specifically, in this case, Paul is arguing from the Old Testament that the Christ, that means the Messiah, the promised one, the one who would deliver from their sins, the Christ would suffer And then be raised from the dead. And since Jesus suffered and rose from the dead, Paul then makes the argument that Jesus is the Christ. Now to be sure, some respond to this news favorably. And that's what we see in verse 4. In verse 4, we're told that some of the Jewish people were persuaded by Paul's teaching and they joined Paul and Silas. Moreover, we're told that a great many devout Greeks and not a few leading women also joined with Paul and Silas too. But having said that, while some in Thessalonica received the message favorably, many did not. And that unfavorable reaction becomes very clear in verses 5 through 9. Look at verses 5 through 9 here in chapter 17. Verse 5 But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they'd taken money, security from Jason, and the rest, they let them go. So listen, it's not just that some disagreed with Paul and Silas' message but then they ignored and moved on with life. It's that they were violently opposed to it. Verse five informs us that the Jews who were jealous of Paul and Silas decided to take some wicked men of the rabble. In other words, they go and recruit men that they know are of terrible character. They form a mob. They set the city in an uproar and then they storm the house of Jason looking to bring out Paul and Silas to the mob. Suffice to say then, the opposition in Thessalonica is not comprised of passive-aggressive Midwesterners who are simply muttering under their breath about something they disagree with. No, instead, the opposition in Thessalonica is actively recruiting wicked men of the rabble, which, by the way, is a really great phrase, right? Next time you see some teenagers being unruly, you can do your passive-aggressive Midwestern thing and, and say, oh, those teenagers of the rabble. Rabble is a great word. They find some people of the rabble. In other words, they find some characters of ill repute They form a mob with said rabble rousers. They start a riot, and then they storm their opponent's house to try and bring them out to the mob. I think it's fair to say that is some pretty hardcore opposition. And it definitely puts some of the opposition that we face in perspective, doesn't it? We have a tendency to get a little bit bent out of shape when someone says something mean about Christians on social media but mean comments on social media are not quite as concerning as an angry mob filled with wicked men starting riots and storming houses to try to chase us down. There's opposition, mean comments on social media, and then there's opposition. In the case of Thessalonica, it's clearly the latter. However, in this particular case, the opposition comes up a bit empty as they can't find Paul and Silas. And so in the absence of finding Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the other Christians before the city authorities. We're told that they were shouting as they did so. And they accused these Christians of turning the world upside down. In other words, they accused them of causing trouble. Now, as at least one commentator pointed out, there's some pretty serious irony in that charge. The same men that formed a mob, recruited wicked men, started a riot, are now accusing the missionaries of causing trouble. That's ironic. Nevertheless, hypocritical as it may be, that's the charge that the crowd is making of Paul and Silas. They're accusing the Christians of turning the world upside down, of causing chaos. Furthermore, in verse 7, the jealous Jews make an even more serious accusation. They accuse Paul and Silas and the other Christians of of committing treason or sedition. They contend that Paul and Silas are proclaiming Jesus as the king, and thus they insinuate that Paul and Silas are trying to overthrow Caesar and the Roman government. Now, of course, there's an element of truth to that, and the Christians were proclaiming Jesus as the king, but they weren't trying to overthrow Caesar or the Roman government. Rather, they were proclaiming that Jesus was a different king with a different kind of kingdom. But be that as it may, the people in the city authorities were deeply disturbed by these charges, likely stemming back to their loyalty to Rome. And so because they're so disturbed by the news, they forced Jason and the rest to pay a security payment. In other words, this is probably a payment that guaranteed, okay, we'll let you go. As long as you guarantee there'll be no more trouble. It seems likely that part of the agreement reached with Jason and the others is that Paul and Silas would have to leave the city in order for them to be set free. Because in verse 10, that's what happens. Under the cover of night, Paul and Silas flee to Berea. And that brings an end to the first account, or to the account of the first city in Acts 17, 1 to 15. And it's not a pretty ending. Now to be fair, some did respond favorably in Thessalonica, but overall the response of the people in Thessalonica, and in particular the Jewish people in Thessalonica, is one of jealousy and persecution, and that stands in stark contrast to the way the gospel message is received in the second city, which brings us now to city number two, Berea, and we see their response beginning in verse 10 through verse 12, so the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now, something you need to understand is the Berea was about 45 miles to the south or southwest of Thessalonica. It was a bit off the beaten path, and it was not nearly as influential a city as Thessalonica. The cities themselves were completely different. But the response that the gospel gets in these two cities is also completely different. Now we're told early on here in verses 10 and 11 that as was their custom and as they did in Thessalonica, upon first arriving in Berea, Paul and Silas again make their way to the synagogue. And as they did in Thessalonica, again Paul and Silas preach Christ from the scriptures. But in Berea, you'll notice the response is radically different. Whereas in Thessalonica, many of the Jewish people violently opposed the message of the gospel. In Berea, the people respond much differently. We're told by Luke that the Jewish people in Berea were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. They examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul and Silas was teaching was true. And many of them believed the good news about Christ. Now we're also told that there were many prominent Greek women and men who believed as well. But the biggest difference between Thessalonica and Berea in terms of response occurred within the Jewish population. Whereas the Jewish people in Berea received the word with eagerness, the Jewish people in Thessalonica received it with jealousy. They're hard-hearted, stubborn, obstinate in Thessalonica. And interestingly enough, their hard-heartedness actually carries over into Berea. Look at what happens next in verses 13 through 15. Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So listen, it's not just that the people in Thessalonica, the Jewish people in Thessalonica, raised a ruckus in Thessalonica in response to the gospel message. They opposed the message so much that they were willing to travel 45 miles to Berea in order to raise a ruckus in Berea too, which is yet another indication of the seriousness of their opposition. It's one thing to oppose a group when they're in your own town. It's another thing to travel 45 miles to oppose that same group, particularly in the first century when a 45-mile trip would have taken two to three days. I mean, think about it this way. I know Nebraska fans don't love the University of Texas. Now, I know the Sooners were bigger rivals back in the day, and maybe now it's the Hawkeyes. But I, I would venture to say that while that may be true, the Longhorns are still the most despised team, at least from what I can gather. And if Texas came to Memorial Stadium this fall to play the Huskers in football, I have no doubt that the Longhorns would be booed relentlessly. That would be expected, because if the Longhorns come to your backyard, that's what they do. They get booed. For a Husker fan living in Lincoln then, to boo, the Hus- or to boo the Longhorns when they come to Lincoln, that would be expected. But if the Longhorns were playing Mississippi State in football, and as a Husker fan, you drove all the way to Mississippi just so you could boo the Longhorns, we'd have to admit that would be a next level of hatred. Your team's not even involved, right? It's one thing to boo when someone's in your backyard. It's another to make a multi-day trip just to boo. And that's what makes the actions of the Jewish people from Thessalonica so fascinating. They weren't just persecuting at a home game. They were persecuting on the road too. They traveled 45 miles in the ancient world. That is no small task. In fact, they were potentially putting their life on the line just so they could persecute Paul and Silas in Berea. And to a degree, it worked because Paul is sent off to Athens and he has to separate from Silas and Timothy. Timothy. Now, obviously, in the big picture, it didn't work at all because the gospel ended up spreading to more regions and to more people because of this persecution. But in the short run, the persecution was effective. And the fact that they went out of their way to persecute Paul and Silas in Berea not only gives us an indication of the seriousness of their opposition, I also think it's a perfect picture of the difference between the way these two cities received the message. Whereas the Berean Jews were of more noble character They received the word with eagerness. They studied the scriptures to make sure it was true. The Thessalonian Jews, on the other hand, were hard-hearted, stubborn, obstinate to the point that they tracked down Paul and Silas on the road. It's a stunning contrast, and indeed a tale of two cities. And it's that contrast that I want us to focus on for the rest of our time together this morning. In particular, I want us to think about what it is that made the Bereans and the Thessalonians different. In verse 11, Luke makes this bold statement that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. So the question is, what made the Bereans of more noble character? Now, I suppose we could come at it a negative way, and we could ask the question, what made the Thessalonians of less noble character? We could ask it that way, but instead, this morning, we're going to focus on the positive question. What is it that made the Bereans more noble? As we think about the contrast between these two cities and the way that they received the word, what was it about the Bereans that set them apart? Now, I think the answer to that question in general is what set the Bereans apart is the way they approached the word of God. But more specifically, I think there are three ways or three things about the way the Bereans approached the word of God that made them different, that set them apart, that gave them more noble character. And so I think it would be worthwhile this morning for us just to walk through those things that made the Bereans different. Notice first that they received the word with all eagerness. They received the word with all eagerness. The first part of verse 11 says this. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Now it's important that we set the stage here in comparing the Thessalonian Jews with the Berean Jews. We're essentially comparing two groups of non-Christian people. Now both of the Thessalonian Jews and the Berean Jews were obviously religious And given the claims of Christianity, that Jesus was a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, both had reasons to investigate the claims of Christ. Whereas the Thessalonian Jews were largely standoffish and stubborn and didn't want to hear from Paul and Silas, the Berean Jews received the word with all eagerness. That phrase, all eagerness, is an important one because it tells us something about the way the Bereans approached the word of God and something about the way they viewed the gospel message. For the Bereans, what Paul and Silas was proclaiming was worth their attention. It was worth their eagerness. In my high school literature class, we had to do a project on an ancient piece of literature known as the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, the project ended up being a fun one because I was working with some of my friends and we had a great teacher who was creative, but the literature itself was not very fun to read. I don't know if you've ever read the Epic of Gilgamesh, but it is a strange work. And it's not exactly PG rated either. It's just bizarre and troubling. And in retrospect, I can safely say this. I did not read the Epic of Gilgamesh with any eagerness. I read it only because I had to. It was a duty, I wanted to get a good grade. But there was nothing in my reading that would suggest eagerness. I did not think to myself as I was heading home from school, I cannot wait to read the Epic of Gilgamesh tonight. It's gonna be awesome. That never happened. I did not have any eagerness at all. And if we're honest, I think that's how a lot of us approach the Bible, too. We approach the Bible with a sense of duty. Now, we should read this, rather than a sense of eagerness, but not the brains. They received the message from Paul and Silas with all eagerness. They wanted to know more. They wanted to understand, how does this fit in with Scripture? Explain this to us. And this is one of the things that set the Bereans apart, that they were eager to know more about Jesus. They were eager to know more about the message, and they were eager to know more, how does it fit in with Scripture? Which brings us to the second thing that sets the Bereans apart. They examined the Scriptures daily to see if what they were being taught was true. They examined the Scriptures daily to see if what they were being taught was true. Again, verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So it wasn't just that the Bereans received the word, they also did the work to make sure it was true. And that's an important distinction to make, isn't it? If someone called me on the phone and told me that I'd won an all-expense-paid trip to the Caribbean, I would receive that word eagerly. But at some point, it's on me to figure out, is this message actually true? Because believe it or not, sometimes people call you and tell you you won things, and they're not telling the truth. So at some point, I have to verify the message. There's a difference between being eager to receive a piece of news as opposed to actually verifying that it's true. But the Bereans were doing both. They wanted to hear the word of the Lord. They're saying, tell us more. We want to hear more about this, Jesus. But they also wanted to make sure it was true. And they didn't just go half-heartedly into trying to figure out if it was true. Luke tells us that they examined the scriptures daily to see if what they were being taught by Paul and Silas was true. So the brains were not pulling the first century equivalent of just doing a quick Google search, typing in, is the message about Jesus true? And then believing whatever the first search result yielded. That's not what happened. By the way, I don't know what the first century equivalent of that would have been, but that's not what they were doing. No, they were examining the scriptures daily to confirm, okay, is what Paul and Silas is teaching, is it consistent with what we read in the Old Testament? So hear this, the Bereans were not eager, but gullible. No, they were eager and diligent. They weren't just satisfied to hear the good news about Jesus. Oh, that sounds good. They wanted to know, is it true? Does it line up with Scripture? Is it consistent with what we read in the Old Testament? And behind that thinking was obviously a belief that the Scriptures are to be consulted because they are the Word of God and trustworthy. And because they believe that to be the case, that the Word of God is the Word of God, the way to know if what Paul was teaching was true was to consult and examine the scriptures and to do so on a daily basis. So the Bereans received the word with eagerness, but they also made sure that the message was true. And that's the second second thing about the Bereans that made them a more noble character. But there's the third thing that set them apart and made them more noble as well, and that's this. When convinced of the truth of scripture, they responded. Verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 again says this, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now you'll note here that that Luke is careful to point out that people from all different backgrounds, men and women, Greeks, Jews, they're all coming to know faith in Christ But notice the chain of action that happens here in verse 11 and 12. That's really what I want to draw our attention to here. The chain of action starts with the Bereans eagerly receiving the word. But then they examine it to make sure it's true by turning to the scriptures. And then once they're convinced it's true, what do they do? They respond. And that last step is an important one. It's one thing to be excited about news. It's another to believe it's true. But the final and most important step is to respond to something that's true. If the Brians would have received the word eagerly and then, then done the work to figure out that it was true but not responded, it wouldn't have done them any good. Listen, we're not saved by just being eager to hear about Jesus. A lot of people get excited when they first hear about Jesus, but then they don't do anything. They don't respond in faith. And so it doesn't lead to salvation. We're also not saved by simply believing that the message about Jesus is true in an intellectual sense. Even the demons rightly recognize who Jesus was. We're saved when, by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, we respond to the message in faith. And to be clear, when we respond in saving faith, it is the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Faith is not a work we do, it's a work the Spirit produces in us. But it is necessary that we respond to the gospel message in order to be saved. Again, this is a work of God, but we must respond, and that's exactly what happens here in Acts 17. The Bereans receive the word with eagerness. They consult the scriptures to make sure it's true, but then they respond. They respond by believing that Jesus is the Messiah, and they turn from their sin, and they trust in Jesus Christ. And that's the third thing that sets the Bereans apart from the Thessalonians. When convinced of the truth of scripture, they respond. And when you put all three of those things together, you can see why Paul described the Bereans the way that he did as noble, more noble than the Thessalonians, because they received the word with eagerness, they examined the scriptures daily to make sure what they were being taught was true, and when convinced of the truth of the scripture, they responded. This is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to respond to the gospel message correctly and to value the word of God rightly. And it's a stunning contrast with what we see in Thessalonica. The Jews in Thessalonica were stubborn, hard-hearted, unopen to reason. The Bereans were the complete opposite. And as is made clear in this passage, clearly the response of the Bereans is the better one. And in light of that reality, here's my question for us this morning. Do we approach the gospel message and the word of God like the Thessalonians or like the Bereans? Now in asking, I want to be careful to point something out here. The context that we're talking about in Acts 17 is not the same context we find ourselves in. In Acts 17, Paul and Silas are addressing unbelieving Jewish people who are steeped in the Old Testament scriptures but did not yet believe in Jesus. As such, the issue in Hayden in Acts 17 is whether these Jewish people were willing to give Paul and Silas an audience and then consult the scriptures to make sure what they were teaching was true. Obviously, that's not the same context that we find ourselves in. We're not in a synagogue, most of us are not Jewish. And so we are not steeped in Old Testament scriptures like they were. There's some differences. We want to be careful then to say, okay, there's a one-to-one tie here between the Bereans and how we should respond to the Word of God. Having said that, though, the principles which underlie the way in which the Bereans approach the Word and the gospel message, I'm convinced, are absolutely applicable to our context. And so I think it's fair to ask this question this morning. Do we approach the gospel message and the Word of God like the Bereans? And to answer that question sincerely and accurately, I think it's helpful for us to walk through the things that made the Bereans different and ask the question, do we possess those qualities? So let's just start with the first one. Do we receive the Word of God with all eagerness? Hear this. If we really believe that this book is the Word of God, if we really believe that this is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, then it is hard to imagine how we could not be eager to hear what it has to say. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine that you had an extraordinarily close relationship with your dad. But when you are in high school, your dad unexpectedly passed away. And 20 years later, you're digging through an old pile of stuff in the garage, and you find an envelope that's addressed to you. And when you open the envelope, you realize immediately, this is your dad's handwriting. And actually, you note at the top of the letter that he wrote the letter one day before he died. My question is, how would you receive that letter? Would you just set it aside and say, oh, maybe I'll read it next year? No, of course not, right? You would rip it open. You'd wanna know, what did he say? I have to know what my dad said right before he died. You would treasure it. You would eagerly rip it open and say, what is in this letter? By the same token, imagine that you're having troubles parenting your kids. Say you have teenagers and you don't know what to do. And so you reach out to the wisest person you know, a mentor of yours, and you say, okay, here's the situation we're going through. I have no idea what to do. Can you please help us? And that person responds by saying, okay, I've got some ideas. I'm going to put them on paper and I'm going to send them to you in a letter. Again, my question is, how would you respond when that letter arrived? Would you just ignore it and toss it in the trash? Or would you open it up and think there might be a lifeline here? We need some help, please. I hope this letter helps. Of course, again, you would open it immediately and eagerly. Here's the point. If there's a source that you trust, and that you treasure, and they're writing on a topic that matters, you will eagerly dive into whatever information that source provides. But hear this, if we would do that for a letter from our dad, or for instructions from a mentor, how much more excited should we be to study the Word of God, and to receive it as it is, the Word of God? Hear me clearly, this is not a dusty old book. It is the Word of God breathed out by God. It explains to us how we can have peace with God. It guides us on the path of how we can find life eternal. And most importantly, it points us to the hope found in Jesus Christ. In fact, to have peace with God and to have eternal life, you must know the good news about Jesus, that he died on the cross for our sins, and three days later he rose from the dead. And this book points us to that hope. And if that doesn't make us excited, and we don't think, I need to study what this says, And trust me, the problem is not with this book, it is with us. So are you eager to receive the word? Secondly, do you examine the scriptures regularly to see if what you're being taught is true? Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but everyone and their brother has an opinion these days. Whether it be podcasts, or Instagram posts, or tweets, or TikTok videos, or old-fashioned newspaper editorials, or cable news outlets... Everyone thinks they know everything about everything, and they presume to be an expert on every topic. But with so many opinions, the question is, how do we know what's true? Even as it relates to what I teach on Sunday morning, I would ask this question, how do you know that what I'm teaching is true? Or for that matter, how do you know if what the guy on the radio is preaching is true or the person on YouTube? The answer to that question is the way you know what's true is because you are regularly and daily studying the scriptures to see if what they're saying is true. The scriptures must be our guide. The scriptures must be our test to know, is this true? I'm guessing you may have heard about this, but recently the United States government established, I'm quoting here, a disinformation governance board, or as some have cynically labeled it, the ministry of truth. Now, according to the government, this board was created in order to fight the spread of disinformation on the internet. Now, there's a lot we could say about the creation of that government entity, and most of what I would say would not be good. But for now, let me just make one observation. When you abandon the Word of God as your ultimate source of truth, it's inevitable that you will look to fill the vacuum of truth with something else. In this case, I guess the government is wanting to be the one that fills that vacuum. But church, let's just be honest here. If we're looking to the government to decide what's true, or for that matter, we're looking to random articles on Facebook or we're listening to cable news outlets, or even the opinion of our neighbor, or even the opinion of the local preacher, I'm just telling you now, we are in serious trouble. And I mean serious trouble. We must look to the Word of God to know what's true. Now, I understand that the Bible doesn't speak to every last issue. I get that. If my dishwasher is broken, there's no verse that's going to tell me how to fix it. I'm going to have to get on YouTube and watch the video. I get that. I understand that. But listen, with that being said, if we're trying to determine what is ultimately true, if we're trying to figure out how do we look at the world that's around us today, if we're not putting the scriptures in front of our face to give us a biblical worldview and to help us think about what is ultimately good and true, then we are in serious trouble. Because the scriptures are our guide. And we must be familiar with what they say so that we can sniff out bad arguments when we hear them. If we're familiar with the scriptures, then when someone says something crazy on social media or cable news or wherever, we'll go, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Church, we must know what the scriptures say. We must hold to what they say because they are the word of God. And if we want to know what's true, we have to start here. Third question When convinced of the truth of scripture, do we respond? Do we respond? Here's the thing. It's one thing if we come on Sunday morning and say, yay, we're listening to the Word of God. But then if we go home the rest of the week and nothing changes, something's wrong with that too. The Word of God is not just meant to be admired or acknowledged. It's meant to produce action. As evidenced by the Bereans, when they became convicted about the truthfulness of what Paul and Silas were teaching, they responded in saving faith. And listen, we need to have the same mentality. For example... Some of you in this room have intellectually believed for a long time that Jesus died on the cross for sins and three days later rose from the dead. But you've never actually responded to that in saving faith. And if that's you, then let me plead with you this morning. Take that final step of response. Respond to the good news. Turn to Jesus in saving faith. Don't just intellectually acknowledge oh, Jesus died on the cross. But instead realize, no, I'm a sinner and I need rescued. The Word of God is not just meant to be admired or acknowledged, it's meant to be applied and responded to. Now, I suppose the one question that really kind of undergirds everything that we've been talking about here, or overshadows everything we've been talking about, is this, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Really, that's the underlying question, isn't it? to examine the scriptures daily, to receive them with eagerness, to respond to them, requires at the end of the day, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? And so that's maybe the most important question that we can gather from the Bereans. And it's one that's implied. Do you believe the Bible is the word of God? At the forefront of Acts 17 is the word. Paul and Silas proclaimed the scriptures because they believed the scriptures were God's word. The Bereans studied the scriptures because they believed the scriptures were God's word. The question is, do we believe that? Do you really believe this book is God's word? If so, then you will study it with eagerness. And you will examine it daily to make sure that what you're being taught is true. And you will respond to it with a passion. Now, if you don't believe this book is the word of God, then just forget about it. Don't do anything with it. But you should know this. You should know this when you're trying to think, how should I respond? You should know that in this passage, there are two cities. And there are two ways of responding to the Word of God, but only one of them is commended by God, and only one of them leads to life. And I'm just going to tell you right now, it's not the way of the Thessalonians. It's the way of the Bereans. They believed the Word of God was the Word of God, and they acted accordingly. And so church, my encouragement this morning is simply this. Let's be like the Bereans. Let's receive the Word with eagerness. Let's study it daily, and let's respond to it accordingly. And let's do all of it because we believe the Word of God is, in fact, the Word of God. And it points us to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. There's nowhere else we can turn to find out about Jesus other than the Scriptures. And so let's treasure them rightly and let's live like Bereans. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your help. We're just going to go ahead and say it. We need your help. We know that we are weak weak. <laughs> We know that we are prone to wander. We know that we are prone to look other areas for hope or truth or peace. But we know at the end of the day, we need to look to your word. And we look to your word because your word testifies about your son, Jesus. And we pray that we would look to the Scriptures so that we could find the hope that's found in the gospel and the good news about Jesus. Lord, help us to study your word eagerly, to study it daily, to make sure that what we're being taught is true and to respond to it accordingly. And help us to do all this because we believe your word is, in fact, your word. So in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. All right, one last thing I'm going to mention here before we get to our benediction. Today is the second Sunday of the month. So that means that we have a benevolent offering. There's a basket that's placed out in the foyer. The two baskets here in the sanctuary are for a normal offering. The basket out by the pillar in the foyer, that's our benevolent offering. That's for those in our church who are hurting financially. If that's you, please, please let us know. We would love to help you even this week. So that's out in the foyer here. All right, you can stand now for a benediction. It's from Numbers chapter 6 today. A familiar benediction that maybe you've heard before. I think a good one to close on this morning. It says this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Have a good week.